Let's turn in our scriptures to Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. And then to, we will read through the end of Isaiah 53. I'll be reading from the NAS. I don't think you'll find anything too, uh, too different. I just want to acknowledge that they, there are some occasional different words. The meaning hasn't changed, but I still prefer my reading in the NAS, and I'm going to stick with where I'm comfortable this morning. So read along with me, please. Starting in 52.13, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what had not been told, what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed." All of us, like sheep, had gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, and he was with a rich man in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge or by knowledge of him, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Pray with me once again. Father, I must admit, I find Isaiah intimidating. I pray that you would open our eyes this morning, open our ears this morning, Lord. Give us an understanding of your word, and do not let us leave here unchanged. Let your word go forth in the power of your spirit to strengthen and encourage each of us and to convert those who have not yet believed. We pray that thy will would be done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I will reiterate what Seth has said a couple of times throughout this series. As you know, we're looking at the songs, the servant songs of Isaiah. And he has said 
Maybe this seems a little more appropriate for Easter. But I was reminded of my in-laws once when I was raising my children. They thought I was maybe being a little too firm, a little too strict. I'm sure there's always some disagreements between the generations. And I reminded them that I was raising children to be adults. And so some training was necessary. Well, Jesus did come as a baby. And that's obviously the Christmas season. But he came as a baby to be a sacrifice. And so that's Easter. It's really hard to separate the two. It's really, I find it very hard to separate the two. Now, I also had another teacher somewhere in the past, I can't remember who, who said if, they, if, if, if you feel like you're struggling, if you feel like you're just not connecting or communicating, try to leave the congregation with one thing. One thing. And so I want you to hear this one thing. And that doesn't mean you're excused from listening throughout the rest of the morning. But if you leave here with nothing else, I want you to ponder this phrase. This is something that has, has grasped me. I actually have a collection of quotes that just, just, just grab at me. And, and I love the ones that have what I call pregnant brevity, a phrase I got from J.I. Packer. They're full, even though they're brief. They can be unpacked in all kinds of sorts of ways. They just have a ring of truth to them. I want you to hear this. There is no peace without justice. And you could even make corollary statements. The less justice, the less peace. The more justice, the more peace. Perfect justice brings perfect peace. But I want you to think there is no peace without justice. And thus the title of our sermon this morning, this is the song, The Suffering Servant, The Price of Peace. I, after I gave that to Minda, I thought maybe we need to change that because people will think it's a typo. You know, at Christmas we talk, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The one who was to come is to be the prince of peace. He will bring peace, establish peace, rule over a kingdom of peace. But first, he had to pay the price of peace. And so we're looking at the suffering servant this morning, and I want you to remember, he, the suffering servant, Christ himself, he is the price of peace. And without, there is no peace without justice. And so this morning we come to our text. This is the fourth and the last of the songs of the servant or the servant songs, however you want to remember that, in the prophecies of Isaiah. We have looked at others. Seth has been preaching through the series. He looked at the humble servant of Isaiah 42, the redeeming servant of Isaiah 50, the obedient servant of Isaiah 49, and now we look at the suffering servant. And I must say, these are not all mutually exclusive because in our passage this morning, we're going to see the humility of Christ, of the servant, um, it's hard to say. If you hear me say servant and Christ interchangeably, that's because they are. The suffering servant is Christ. Isaiah declaring the will of God, the promises of God, that he would take the sins of his people beforehand, whereas we're looking back at the accomplishment because the servant has come and done all that God foresaid. So in these ideas of the, of the servants, the humble, the redeeming, and the obedient, there's a lot of overlap, and in, 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 in it's, it's really a different emphasis in each of the songs, not a different song altogether. In our song this morning, you will see the humble servant. We will certainly see the redeeming servant, the obedient servant who gave himself as this sacrifice. But we are going to emphasize, as this song does, the suffering servant. So, 
I also find it interesting, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11 says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So this is the sum total, really, of Old Testament prophecy, the sufferings of the Christ who was to come, and then the glories that would follow. There's these two stages. We're looking primarily at the suffering this morning, but it's never the suffering alone because he did not come just to suffer. He did not come just to suffer, but to satisfy the justice of God that there may be peace between God and his creation and God and his people, and then there will be the glories to follow. And this is the sum of the purposes of Old Testament prophecy. And this is present in our passage, the ideas of sufferings and glory, but the sufferings here being the central emphasis, but never the only emphasis. And this is also seen as the central idea in this song because of the structure of it. Now, Mark Futado, who is familiar to many of you, what's he say? If you want, how will anybody know what you're talking about unless you what? Repeat it. Okay, but today we're not emphasizing repetition so much as another thing Mark Futado would tell you is the structure of the song, just like in many of the Psalms, will tell you what the main point is because they're going to put it in the middle. And so if you look at ours this morning, beginning in 52.13, we have five three-verse stanzas. And these things are set actually kind of to balance each other out. So you've got one and five sharing the same themes, same emphases. Then you got two and four sharing the same themes and emphases. But these things are nothing but bookends, brackets, to get you to the center. Because the center is the heart of the message. Now this, chapter 33 especially, has been called the heart of Old Testament prophecy. And by the time we get to the center, verses 4 through 6, we will be at the heart of the heart of Old Testament prophecy. And by the time we get to verse 5 specifically, we will be at the heart of the heart of the heart of Old Testament prophecy. So we're going to look at this from the outside in, beginning with section 1, and we're going to build ourselves right into that center core, which is what the prophet was primarily trying to tell the people of God. So... Starting in 52, verses 13 through 15, we look at the introduction of our double themes this morning, both the suffering and the glory, and we will see this again in section 5. Here it is an introductory statement. It is a little bit more vague, but the ideas are clearly here. For in verse 13, you see that my servant will prosper. Now in the ESV it says act wisely, but in Old Testament wisdom literature to act wisely is to live well according to the patterns of life as God has designed them, which leads you to prospering. Okay, now this is, this is not one of the, the health and wealth, you know, sermons, but there is just a way that since God has designed life and he has given us instructions that life is best lived this way, that when we learn to live according to that, we live wisely and we prosper, we succeed, we, we overcome. Well, that's the right idea, that's the start of the idea, so you can see there's no contradiction there, but here prospering is to succeed or to triumph, to accomplish the will of God. This is reinforced here by the second part of verse 13, he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. This is talking about the servant, the one who would come and suffer first, would be high, lifted up, greatly exalted. All three of these, by the way, are used in the book of Isaiah to describe God himself. So there may be an implication here of the deity of this suffering servant. But certainly after he comes and after he accomplishes the will of God, he will prosper. There is more to the story than just the suffering and death of the servant. So we start with he will prosper, he will succeed, 
He will be high and lifted up. But very quickly as we get to verse 14, we get into the suffering. This is presented here primarily as a physical suffering, which can be also looked at metaphorically to just say he suffered. He's going to suffer. When it says that his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men, this is talking about the extremity of the suffering. He's going to suffer greatly. It's so much so that the people were astonished. In fact, he says, just as many were astonished at you, they're going to be more astonished at him. When he says astonished, he's talking about the sufferings of God's people up through history here. There's a couple of times, if you look back, 1 Kings 9 and then later in Jeremiah 19, when God is talking to different prophets or he's talking about the future, he's saying there will come a time of judgment even upon God's people and the judgment will be so severe that those who see it will be astonished. And so, like here, being a metaphor, just as many were astonished at you, people will be astonished at him. The suffering truly will be great, but that will not be the end of the story. Because of his suffering, he will sprinkle many nations. So there's a point to the suffering. And how many of you have suffered, but yet, at least if you could identify a purpose in it, does it not help sanctify it a little bit? You know, when you suffer for no purpose, when you can't see the end goal, it makes you wonder why, why, why. But if there's a point, well, there is a point to the sufferings of Christ. So he will sprinkle the nations. In Leviticus 4, this is the, this is, there's talk about a sprinkling where, where the high priest once a year would take the blood of the atonement from the sacrifice, the annual sacrifice, and he would take it into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat for the sins of the people. So there's that meaning here. But also, if you go to Exodus 24, Moses, when he reads the covenant to the people, then he takes the blood of this sacrifice and he sprinkles it. He takes a branch and dips it in the blood and sprinkles it on the people, thereby identifying them, sealing them, as it were, identifying and including them into the covenant people of God. Thus, he will sprinkle many nations. They're saying that through his suffering, he will draw the nations He will draw the nations to God himself through his suffering. It is a necessary suffering to accomplish the purposes of God in the drawing in of the people. So what they had not been told, they will see. What they had not heard, they will understand. They will see. They will hear. They will come. Because through the suffering of the servant, God will accomplish his purposes. If we drop down now to section 5, which for us would be chapter 53, 10 through 12, we also see another section that that focuses in on not just the suffering but the glory to come. So there are extra elements here in reward for the making himself of an offering. So when the servant comes according to the will of God and offers himself up as a sacrifice, he will be rewarded. But the two themes here are still worked out, just in more or less detail to our first section. So similar yet more complete. Just uh, I'm going to take these just as suffering and then glory. But in suffering in verse 10, we see the words crush, make himself a guilt offering, which entails death. In verse 11, it speaks of the anguish of his heart. This word means toilsome labor. Verse 12, he talks about having poured himself out to death and was found numbered with the transgressors. There's plenty of suffering here. When we drop down and think of the ideas of the glory to come, in verse 10, we see the words, we see that there are resurrection and eternal life. Now, it does not use these words, but it says that if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He renders himself as a guilt offering to death, and yet he will see his offspring. He will see his seed. 
And then, the, and then it says he will prolong his days. This is an, an Old Testament way of looking forward to the resurrection. Though he dies, yet he will live. Resurrection and eternal life, he will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Down in verse 11, he will save the many. By knowledge of him, he will justify the many. The idea of justification is those that God counts as righteous. God counts them as acceptable to him for the righteousness of Christ only imputed to them and received by faith. But yet he, his death will accomplish the justification of many, the salvation of many as he draws them to God. So he will save the many. He will justify. And then in verse 12, we see glory because it says that he will receive great reward reward and share it with his redeemed people. This is in the language at the beginning of verse 12. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. So if you've ever seen the old Hollywood movies of the triumphal procession of the, the conquering hero who brings the spoils back and lays, you know, there's celebration. Well, he is the conquering hero. And because of his his deeds, he will be rewarded. And he will not just be selfish. He will have an abundance of reward because then he will share it with the people following along in his train. So we see the suffering of Christ. We see the glory of Christ all according to the will of God. And you can't help but think of the parallelism here in Paul's thought in Philippians 2 because God who existed in existed as God, did not consider equality with God, that thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of bondservant, being obedient to the point even of death, and then doesn't end there, but God highly exalts him. So we see the two themes of suffering and glory, or humiliation and then exaltation. And so there is the outside of our book ends. Now, more suffering as we move in closer to the central part of the passage we come to sections two and four and again now remember we're at the heart of hebrew prophecy and now we're coming closer to the heart of the heart of hebrew prophecy for we again speak of suffering but now we're talking about the suffering of the of the servant in his life in his life in fact the first section section two it's hard to keep track isn't it Starting the beginning of chapter 53, first three verses, we're talking about his personal suffering, the suffering of his life, his livelihood. And in here, I guess you could just sum it all up and say this is the suffering of rejection. This is someone who was physically unimpressive. When it says that he grew up as a tender shoot, these are like the little suckers that grow up out of the roots of the plants in your garden, the ones you go in immediately and clip them off so that the rest of the plant can grow up healthy and strong. It's, it's the refuse. It's the stuff you don't want to see there. This is stuff that you don't want to be part of it. So a tender shoot or even the root out of parched ground, this is the root that springs up, but you know not how because it's coming out of parched ground. Where did it get any moisture and nutrition to spring up at all? So it stays frail It stays frail and fragile, unimpressive. So this is the nondescript. He's unattractive. He calls him a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is a man who, who deals with pains, a man who is acquainted with sicknesses. Okay, so whether... Some people try to write this off and explain it away and say this is the identification with the sick of a physician. But I don't believe that's what we're talking about here. I believe this is his personal experience as a man who came to suffer, and he knew what it was to be in pain. He knew what it was to be sick. And, and, and because of this, there's just nothing about him that would lead others to think anything of him other than he's kind of pitiful. He might be labeled a loser. If anybody took note of him at all, which they probably wouldn't, which is sometimes the greatest insult. 
Those that just get ignored because they're not worth your time, we're not worth your consideration, that's a great insult. As a side note, Jesus went out of his way for those people. And so should we. But that's just a bonus exhortation this morning. So he suffered the suffering of rejection. There is nothing about him that would make any of us think anything of him. And so we would even, because because when we see a weakness, isn't that sometimes when we're tempted to be the most cruel? I mean, at the very, at the very least, at least we would leave them alone, but sometimes we would despise. He even uses the language despise. He was despised and forsaken of men. He was a loser, according to the ways of the world, worthless, certainly gave no impression that somehow this was to be the savior of the world. And yet, now we're talking about suffering. Drop down to chapter 53, verses 7 through 9. Here is the suffering of injustice. In verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. And remember, when we looked at the humble servant, he did not defend himself. Here it says two times, like the sheep, like a sheep that is silent before it shears, he did not open his mouth. And I can't find the second one. Once is enough. He didn't open his mouth. He didn't defend himself. He suffered what is clearly an injustice because he himself was not a sinner. He himself had no sins or offenses of his own. And yet people looked at him and said, well, he must be. Look at the cursed life he's leading. How would you like to be doing the best you can? And yet the product or the results or the appearance of your life is that you are cursed of God. And so he suffered, and here he suffers injustice. He was oppressed and afflicted. No one considered that his suffering could possibly have been for any good purposes, but simply that it was the evidence of his being cursed of God and living a life that is consistent with a cursed person. The idea of his grave being assigned with the wicked is yet more evidence of this curse And yet it says he was with a rich man in his death. Some people see that as a negative statement. I have to say I disagree with them. They say even that was a negative statement because because the average person in the street would look at the rich people and say the rich class are the ones that oppress the poor. And so here again, he's assigned a grave with the wicked. He's assigned a grave with the rich. And so that's all a negative thing. I don't believe so. I do believe this is one of those things dropped in there as a defense of him. Yes, he was assigned with a grave with the wicked, and he was with the rich in his death, although he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. He was accused, but he was not guilty. And the idea of him being assigned a grave with the rich... I look at that. Some people would write that off as as an accident of history. It's not an accident of history. It's one of these things that God plants in here to show that when it comes to, to pass, his word shows itself true. And here's another phrase for you to remember I found in this study that I just got to throw out here. Prophecy is the vessel into which history is poured. Isn't that great? Okay, we are reading prophetic literature here. He throws in here that even though he was, he was killed along with the wicked, he had a grave with the rich. And sure enough, in the life of Christ, do we not see that happen? Prophecy is the vessel into which history is poured. So the suffering of injustice. No violence in him, no deceit in him, and yet a cursed death as, long, as well as a cursed life. And why so much suffering? We've seen it implied, we've seen it stated a little bit when we looked at the suffering and glory because there is something to come after the glory, 
or after the suffering, he will come into glory and he will share this glory with his people. But here is just suffering and suffering as we get here closer to the center. Why so much suffering? We are not given the answer to why. Why must the servant suffer at all? Why is this God's design? Why should he suffer so much, let alone so grievously and unjustly? Well, if Isaiah 53 is the heart of Hebrew prophecy, and if this, then then 4 to 6 is the heart of the heart of Hebrew prophecy. Because now when we come to the topic of suffering, we see that he suffered vicariously. Suffered vicariously. He suffered as a substitute. He did not suffer for his own sins. He suffered for the sins of God's people. He suffered for the sins of others. He suffered vicariously. Note especially the personal plural pronouns as we first get into verse 4. Surely our griefs. He was a man of griefs, remember? But he suffered because of our griefs, our sicknesses, our pains. Our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we simply esteemed him as stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. We didn't get it. The people of God are so slow to believe. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being or the chastisement for our peace fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. He's suffering, but he's suffering as a substitute. This is not for his sins. This is not for his wrongdoings. This is not for his failings or his falling shorts. This is not for his transgressions of the law of God, for he perfectly fulfilled them. This is the suffering for us, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Verse 6, if there's any doubt left, tells us plainly that the guilt is ours. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Now, some of us may take some comfort there. First of all, let me just say, sheep do go astray. It's in the nature of a sheep to go astray. A sheep has his head down most of the time looking for the greenest part of grass, and if he sees something else over here, he he goes over there very quickly. There's not much point to his day other than to go from one thing to the next. And so they do, it's, it's their nature to go astray. And when we are being compared to them, it is not in their best attributes. It's in their their tendency to go to go astray. This is our nature. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. But the comfort people take in here is that he says, first, all of us. Because we feel safe in a crowd. We think, surely that finger doesn't come to rest on me. All of us. It's a general statement, is it not? It's kind of a comprehensive statement. All of us. They don't leave us there. Each of us has turned to his own way. Now we're singled out. Now we can't hide behind the other person when the picture is being taken. You know, we're stuck. All of us have gone astray. That is our very nature. Each of us has turned to his own way. Now, when you say astray, that almost sounds like a a, a passive fault. Now, that is our nature, and that's because we have a corrupted, sinful nature because of our first parents. But when it says that we've turned away, that's a rebellion. That's a rebellion, and we are all guilty. So we have a corrupted nature And we have guilt because we've turned away. And this is no different, really. This is no different than Adam and Eve in the garden, is it not? When God designs life and he designs a place and he puts them in this place that is perfectly suited for their fruitfulness, and he gives them one command, says, don't mess with this tree. And what's the first, not the first thing. It doesn't tell us the first thing. It's always been an interesting question. How long did they stay in paradise before they messed it up? But it, what, but the root of their sin is, is that no, I will decide for myself whether I should touch that tree or not. 
You see how they turned aside? All of us, all of us have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We are proving ourselves to be the children of our parents. And we are in rebellion against God by nature. And so here it is a a comprehensive accusation, but it is also an individual accusation. And none of us are exempt from this. None of us are exempt from this. And so then we come to the heart of the heart of the heart of Old Testament prophecy, and we get to verse 5. Verse 5. We come back to verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. This piercing, by the way, is like a puncturing or even a rendering of the skin till the blood flows. I mean, it's meant to be kind of graphic. The idea of him being crushed for our iniquities. I was in the Tower of London one time, and there was one form of torture where they bound you into this cage that they can continue tightening and tightening until you're crushed. It's a form of torture until the blood, don't want to be too graphic, the blood flowed. Okay, He was pierced. He was crushed. He was put to death violently because of my transgression, because of your transgression, because of the breaking of the law of God and the failures to live up to God's and purposes for us. He was done for this. Now, let's talk about the price of peace. By now, it's probably obvious, the price of peace, the chastening for our well-being or the chastisement for our peace in the ESV. Chastening, this word really refers to kind of a discipline, the discipline for our peace, the consequences, the just desert, that which is deserved by the action. (laughs) This, the chastisement, the chastening for our peace has fallen on him. And this word peace You know, the reason the NAS doesn't use just the word peace here because it's the Hebrew word shalom, which many people have tried to explain to us, and I'm not equal to the task. It's so much more than peace. Peace is like an absence of non-peace. So there's no tension. There's no conflict. There's nothing going on between me and my neighbor, me and my spouse, whatever it is. It's just peace. But that is too small a word. And since we don't walk around saying shalom, they try to come up with something else and saying well-being. But what this is, is the fullness of blessedness at God's hand. The fullness, whatever that is, made right with our creator. Any barriers to the relationship, the right relationship between us and our creator having been removed, that's shalom. So that we can live in the fullness of blessing, ever increasing now, but especially in the, in the time to come. Because there will come a day when we will be forever, and there's another part of the blessedness of shalom, eternal, forever in the full blessedness of being made right with our creator and in the presence of God. Because remember Psalm 16, in his presence there is fullness of joy. And in his right hand are pleasures forever. There's shalom. That's a great picture. And the chastisement for our peace was laid upon him. There is no peace without justice. Why was this necessary? Because God was offended. God was offended. God was offended by sin. God has been sinned against. His holiness has been offended. The offense of our sin against the holy character of God must be satisfied. Must be. God is... God is in some ways very complicated, but in some ways theologians use the word God is simple. Meaning God is indivisible. 
And so what God is, he always is at all times and all places without any change. And when God reacts out of one part or one attribute or part of his character, it never is at, is at the expense or the elimination of the other character. So God is always holy. And any violation of the law of God or failure to live up to the plan of God, the purposes of God for you, is an offense to him. He cannot simply overlook it and dismiss it. Okay, and so, so what is needed is justice because he's holy and he's merciful and he's full of compassion. And before the foundation of the earth, he's chosen a people for himself that he set out to redeem. But he couldn't do it at the, and, and ignore the holiness, ignore his righteous character, ignore the violations against his very being. And so rather than leaving it up to us because he knew we could never get there, he partnered with the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and with the Spirit who applies to us all the fruits and benefits of what Christ accomplished in his suffering. God did all things necessary. And that's why around here, along with Seth, you've heard him say it before too, I don't know where it came from, but around here that's why we say God saves sinners. What is the price of peace? The very Son of God himself. He's the price of peace because there is no peace without justice. And sins had to be atoned for. So in the simplicity or indivisibility of God, he did what was necessary that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Just and justifier, I take that from Romans 3, starting in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, all of us like sheep. Each of us turning to our own way, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified, that's being counted as righteous, simply as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, the servant who suffered for our sins, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. That's that sacrifice of atonement we saw back on the mercy seat or that they sprinkled the blood on the people. So whom God displayed as a propitiation in his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. That doesn't mean he forgot them. It means he bore with them for a time, for the day when he would take care of the problem. He passed over the sins previously for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just, satisfy the demands of his holy character, and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Just and justifier. That's the price of peace. Christ makes that possible. The one sent by God to suffer in the place of sinners that he might reconcile them to God, that God might look upon them and see them as holy and undefiled and acceptable to him, not for their own righteousness, not that they somehow finally figure the formula and get it right, but because of the righteousness of Christ counted as theirs. That is the salvation of our God. That is the price of peace. That is the satisfaction of the justice of God, that he might be just and justified. Isaiah's purpose here this morning is to call people to faith. Isaiah has been preaching this message. He's been a spokesperson for God for several decades by this point. And you can see the exasperation in Isaiah at the very beginning of chapter 3, but who who has believed our message? (laughs) 
To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is God's power for salvation. You can see that back in chapter 52, verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Now there it's talking about the future physical deliverance of the people of God who have been in captivity and bringing them back to the land of promise. But here Isaiah is saying, yes, but what about our sin? What are we going to do? What can be done about it? And that's where the role of the suffering servant. So who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed in Isaiah's day? Not many. Not many. He was told at his commission by God that he, his purpose was to go and continue to declare the goodness of God, even though the people would stay hardened in their hearts. And such is the case of the bulk of human population continuing on the earth to this day. They were to draw near and trust in the promise that God's servant would take care of their sin problem and establish justice, which would be bring peace. We are to look and draw near to Christ in the accomplished work of Christ that is on display when we have the celebration of Christmas because he came as a baby, but he came to suffer and die for our sins. And we are to look with an expectation and a hope because there is still a glory to come when the full benefits of the redemption purchased by Christ will be ours will be our inheritance, that which we only have a taste of now. So this salvation ultimately is first and foremost of God. To whom has the arm of the Lord been bared for salvation? Not many. It takes the act of God first. He has to open your eyes. He has to send forth his spirit and give you a new heart so that when the word is preached, you might hear and understand and look to Christ in faith and receive this gift of the servant's suffering for your sins. And so here this morning, I do want to call. There are some here, we, you know, we have a habit of, we, we have a habit of habits. <laughs> Sometimes we've gone to church our whole lives and we really couldn't tell you why. It's something we do, but especially in the seasons of Christmas and Easter. That doesn't make you a believer. Okay? You, 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 the only thing for you is to pray that God would open your eyes, give you understanding, and you look by, in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who suffers for sinners and makes them clean. And so that they can approach, they can, they can approach the throne of God. They can live in the presence of God. They can experience the blessedness of God. Look in faith to Him. So if you haven't believed, in him who is the price of peace, your peace with God. Don't harden your heart. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the suffering servant. Be saved from the penalties of your sin. Be at peace with God. And if you are at peace with God, i got great news for you. Just rejoice. <laughs> rejoice. This is the time of the year we come together to once again be reminded of the goodness of God, that he has not left us in darkness. But yet he has sent his son and he has called us out of darkness into light, transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. He has gathered us into his family. All the goodness of God. There are not words to say it enough. Let me just remind you to rejoice in the goodness of God as the price of peace has been supplied by God himself to your eternal blessedness and all things for his glory. Now, I used to watch an old preacher. I don't recommend too many TV preachers, and I don't believe he's on TV anymore, so I can say this. But somewhere in the sermon, he would always get overwhelmed with the truth, and he would say, I believe, and amen goes there. 
And so as we finish today and consider the goodness of God, all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Father, fill our hearts with your goodness.